0: Hello, and welcome back to the Duper Podcast. I'm Luke Morgante, and joining me in this episode is American historian and recent grantee, Duncan Bayer. Topics throughout the episode relate to Bayer's research into America's first centralized intelligence agencies, their development, and their operations in Austria during the 1940s. From the SSU to the CIA, there are many surprising stories to discover. If you would like to find more of Duncan Bear's work, follow the links in the description. Now, please enjoy the episode. To start off, could you give us a little bit of a background on yourself, where you're from, as well as your academic interests thus far?
1: Sure. Uh, so my name is Duncan Bear. I'm a 2022-2023 Bochtieberg grant recipient. And um, my research focus is uh, primarily on U.S. intelligence in the Second World War and the immediate post-war period, so up to about 1947, uh, within a Central European context. So, uh, you know, to look at basically uh, what U.S. intelligence was doing in Austria and Germany and then from those countries, how they operated into what nowadays would be Central or Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, Ukraine, um, those areas, and uh, further afield. So I also look at uh, into Yugoslavia, so through Trieste and uh, the Balkans.
0: And what kind of drew your interest to these fields early on?
1: Well, I had um, started with my bachelor and master thesis. And I was really inspired to look at these areas by my advisor at the time and my current dissertation advisor, Siegfried Baer. And he encouraged me to explore what was available at the US National Archives and uh, specifically to focus on records of the Office of Strategic Services, so the OSS. And through that, I became very interested in sort of the first U.S. intelligence organizations in what would say modern or contemporary times. So the predecessors of the CIA. That was more or less how I got into the subject area. And then because I was studying in Austria, uh, it's sort of the gateway to Central Europe and uh, played and it still plays a very important role in regional dynamics. And it was an easy connection for me to sort of tie my university studies in Austria to my historical interest in uh, US intelligence, and then just to kind of combine them together. And uh, of course, through Professor Baer, I uh, very quickly and very early in my studies heard about the Bochtieber Institute and only really worked up the nerve to submit an application after about you know 15 years knowing
0: about Botchedieber. Well, I'm glad it worked out in the end. Uh, I think it did. I'm (laughs) I'm
1: very satisfied with the results, and uh, it was a very, very smooth process.
0: I'm glad to hear it. So your project, the initial title, I'm not sure if it has changed since then, but the initial title was America's Eyes on and in Central Europe, a reexamination of SSU and CIG in Austria. And my understanding of these organizations is not very good. Uh, okay. And the early history as it goes from the OSS to the SS, SSU and the CIG and then eventually the CIA can be quite confusing. Could you explain what those different organizations were and how they're connected? Sure. Uh,
1: first, let me start by saying you're not alone. It's um, confusing to me and uh, it's what I what I dedicate most of my academic energy to. It's not clear-cut at all. What I like to do is to make generalizations and to say that roughly this is what happened. Uh, but it's absolutely opaque at times, and uh, it can be very confusing. So don't get yourself down if if it's hard to understand because I suffer from the same problem at times. So before the Second World War, reaches the United States. President Roosevelt sets up, it's called the Coordinator of Information, the COI. And he names this New York uh, Republican lawyer to become his Coordinator of Information, and that's uh, William J. Donovan. In 1942, there's a lot of bureaucratic struggles in Washington, and the COI becomes the Office of Strategic Services. So most parts of it form the OSS, And then new capabilities, more military operational capabilities are added. And that forms the OSS, which runs from 1942 until uh, September, October, 1945. With the end of the war, there's the peace dividend. And um, of course, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt being the champion of intelligence and of Donovan in particular, with his death earlier in the year, um, he's replaced by President Truman, who doesn't really get along with Donovan. He doesn't really see a need for intelligence of the kind that OSS is producing. And he's being pressured by different bureaus of, of the federal government to sort of cut back spending and not to create what's been termed in the newspapers of the time as an American Gestapo. So that's the big fear that kind of sinks. Uh, OSS in the post-war period. So what happens at the end of September 1945 is the two big or the two leading intelligence producing branches of OSS, you have uh, secret intelligence and you have counterintelligence. These are sort of chopped off of OSS and given to the war department, and they become the strategic services unit, which is SSU. The research and analysis branch, which is the other big intelligence uh, producing, let's say, office of OSS, that's given over to the State Department. And that becomes what's known at the time as IRIS. So the Interim Research and Intelligence Service. Um, Nowadays, it's INR. It's the Bureau of Intelligence and Research within the State Department. So that still exists. But SSU is really secret intelligence, which is positive intelligence and counterintelligence. And they continue to operate in Washington and uh, abroad around the world, in Austria in particular, until the middle of 1946. And um, the secret intelligence, uh, central intelligence group, the CIG, is created in uh, January 1946 as sort of a placeholder for a future national intelligence uh, agency, a central intelligence agency. And different offices, different branches are attached to it, sort of as a placeholder. So it will take on different competences. And then uh, eventually, the, th- the thinking at the time goes, it will form this central intelligence agency, which, which does happen. But it's a very tricky bureaucratic process. So in the middle of 1946, SSU, it's active branches, not its support ones, so not, you know, its services and its secretarial stuff, its active branches become part of CIG, and they form what's known as uh, the Office of Special Operations, OSO, uh, which should become a bit more familiar because OSO then carries on over into the early CIA in 1947. So there, there is this continuity, but it's very convoluted. It's very bureaucratically colored. It's very, um, from month to month, it changes. So you'll see on documents that they're stamped SSU one month, and the next month, you know, OSO or FSRO or FBM. It it really it changes so often. And it's, it's been very tricky to piece it back together. Uh, But those are sort of the broad strokes that up until October 1945, you have the OSS From then on, you have SSU and you have IRIS, and then SSU becomes CIG OSO in the summer of 1946. And then by the middle of October, um, that's when the the big cutoff comes and um, SSU personnel are fired on the 19th, and they're rehired to CIG on the 20th. And that sort of marks CIA would say that's sort of when their prehistory officially begins, because that's when the documents really dry up uh, in the archives.
0: It seems somewhat surprising to me that the, uh, these intelligence organizations didn't really form until the post-war period or develop fully until the post-war period. I guess on a slightly different front, for your project, what questions were you hoping to answer with your research? And how did you go about doing the research itself?
1: Sure. So let me just, on your the first point you raised, It's it's hard to think of it today because of everything we know about intelligence and national security. But there still is this undercurrent in American society that basically is very isolationist. And it was even more pronounced back then. So we have this global war, we have millions of American men and women, you know, either under arms or mobilized to work in factories and the arsenal of democracy. And, you know, you look at numbers and figures and you think, wow, within a few months, America went from having basically no army at all, to having the world's mightiest, you know, fighting force. And you know, fighting this huge war, not only against you know the Germans and the Italians and their allies in Europe, but also against the Japanese. And you think, why couldn't we have an intelligence organization back then? And the answer is, it sort of plays into this American spirit of we don't do something until we absolutely need to do it. And Pearl Harbor was sort of this wake-up call. And you know, at least President Roosevelt had the prescience to know in 1940, 1941, that he needed better intelligence and more information. So he was sort of ahead of the curve, but American society in general, we don't, we're not really known for that. We, we sort of, we wait until the last minute and then we put everything into it. And it's the same with intelligence. And um, in the post-war period, there was just this, this drawdown where, you know, we had we're spending way too much and congressmen from idaho and and iowa not to signal single those states out but from the middle of the country who aren't really very cosmopolitan that they need to say well how do i explain this to my to my um, constituents that we're spending on an american gestapo and you can look at these debates kind of in um that played out in newspapers and also in in the house of representatives and and in the senate even and and you see that there really was this iso- return to isolationism or sort of, we want that. Uh, but I, I, I kind of digress there away from your other uh, question.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good explanation of it. I guess to go back to the other question, would you, could you now elaborate on how the initial idea for this research came about and how you went about doing the research itself? Sure. So the...
1: The initial idea, it's actually, I come back again to Professor Baer, to um, Siegfried Baer, that he had, he told me that um, there was this botch event coming up and he asked if I would be interested in, in doing a, a paper with him, a digital paper, um, because I was not in Austria at the time. And uh, I said, sure, sounds, sounds great to me. And it was about um, Americans in Vienna. So it was a joint event with, I believe, Tel Aviv University of the Negev. Might be Tel Aviv. I think it's, I know it's the University of the Desert, University of the Negev, something like that. We prepared a paper together, a presentation. It was a really nice event. Um, And then the organizer of it, uh, his name escapes me right now, but I'm sure I'll remember it. Uh, he asked if we'd be interested in, in writing down our findings and producing a journal article. And that was, that was the first um, journal article that Professor Baer and I co-authored. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed researching for it. And so many questions came out of that article. I mean, questions to myself, so many interesting areas of, of examination and i just wanted to take a closer look at at the role of austria in u.s intelligence not with a focus on austria per se so not looking at well what did they know about um, this political party or this labor union or did they infiltrate the soviets here that that has sort of been examined already i would say Um, my interest was more from the American perspective, how did these Americans who were in Austria perceive themselves, perceive the organizations they worked for, and perceive the work they were doing? Because this is highly infiltrating a meeting of, you know, the Austrian Communist Party or meeting with SS, uh, former SS officer intelligence officers. This is not something you're really trained to do as a 30-something-year-old American. This is very specific kind of work, you need a certain knowledge, a certain, you know, German, this word fingerspitzengefühl, this fingertip feeling for this stuff. How did these guys who are roughly my age and women, not only uh, guys, how did these people, um, how did they feel about this? And how did they organize themselves? And how did they, let's say, get to work? How did they plan their approaches or report on things sort of as an American myself living who had lived in Austria, I knew how I had accomplished certain things, and I wondered uh, if any parallels could be drawn to how they had had done it, you know, 70, 80 years before. I wanted to write a biography of U.S. intelligence in Austria in the post-war period, not operational biography, but sort of this personal biography. Who were they? Where did they come from? How did they have this knowledge? And how did they, how did they work on a daily basis? they like each other? Really sort of mundane questions. But for me, they were, they're so interesting uh, because of the personalities involved.
0: As an American who has now spent time living in Austria yourself, how, how were you able to empathize or sympathize with the people that you were writing about as you went along?
1: Well, I, I think I actually had an advantage because when I first came to Austria, I did have some German knowledge, but it was... Hochdeutsch. So it was standard German. And I got off the plane, uh, at Graz airport in Styria, and I, I basically didn't understand a single word. I had never, I had been to Germany and spoken Germany there, spoken German there. But getting to Austria, I just felt like I, I really, I don't understand a thing or very little. And um, I remember when I opened a bank account, I went and the bank teller, he was an older gentleman and he he started speaking to me and I I understood it wasn't German what he was saying and I I sort of had to say to him I, I'm sorry I really don't understand can you repeat it for me my, my I'm not so good with Austrian and he said your name it's it's Dunchan. so you speak Slovenian and I said no no it's it's Duncan and I don't speak any Slovenian whatsoever so. I sort of had this experience where I'm already in trouble, and then someone is speaking to me in a completely different language because they think it's, it's you know, they look at my name. So I can empathize on, on a few different levels. First of all, the language. Second of all, there's the cultural um, differences between the United States and, let's say, Anglo-Saxon culture. So a name like Duncan, someone who's read Shakespeare knows, okay, it's, it's Duncan, it's not Dunchan. But they don't read Shakespeare in Austrian schools or they don't read it as much. And uh, so, you know, I had this sort of culture shock and I knew that there would be instances in in, uh, in my research where I would see that perhaps some Americans had, had experienced something similar. And I've found instances like that where, you know, one really funny one is uh, the word Bürgermeister, which for and as an american uh, it sounds very strange even though you know we have it in um, if you remember the the rudolf cartoon there's uh, burgermeister burgermeister um, i think that's his name and they they say it uh, burgermeister from, meister burger burgermeister meister i know, I know burgermeister, that burgermeister, yeah. i know that one <laughs> that's 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 the one i meant and so in reports i'm seeing this word burgomaster B-U-R-G-O-M-A-S-T-E-R. And I was wondering, what is this? Who is this person? And then I think, ah, it's how phonetically the word Burgermeister would probably sound to an American who didn't know German. So they write this word burgomaster because they don't know that it means mayor. And they just phonetically (laughs) write it. And little little, tiny things like that um, have been very sort of, I felt this connection to people, uh, you know. I've understood that that's that's how one of my compatriots would act in a similar situation. Yeah,
0: that's, that's fantastic. I, I had never been to Austria. I, I'd lived briefly in Germany, but I had never been to Austria until last summer uh, to help with a conference in Innsbruck. Okay. And I remember I was talking to one of the maintenance staff uh, and he was speaking to me directly in Tirolisch. Oh, and boy. it was a, a very long list of things that I would need to take care of throughout the day. And at the end of him talking, I didn't want to admit it, but I had almost no idea what he had said. And I felt so bad about my German uh, learning prior to that. But it's it's it really is almost like another language, let alone someone speaking to you in Slovenian. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's I, crazy. I, it's it it
1: and it's it's something. I'm glad you said that you you had been to Germany because you don't really experience that sort of thing in Germany. You probably would experience more that they would switch into English, even if you speak German, because that's sort of this German, I don't want to say politeness, but they, they want to speak to people in English if they, they want to practice their English. But in Austria, you have this sort of, I want to say, I like it a bit more. They will try to make you understand In German, in Austrian German, in dialect, they won't switch over to English because, no, they're in Austria. They're going to speak to you in Austrian. For me, that's a bit more comfortable because it forces you to learn the language, to speak the language, even if it's uncomfortable. But, you know, it puts you out of your comfort zone. And I have to give Austrians credit for that and really say that I like it very much. It helped me with my German uh, when I was, you know, starting out.
0: That's a very nice sentiment. I would have to agree. So your project also makes a distinction on the officers who were working for the intelligence organizations remotely from the headquarters in the United States and those that were working in the field within Austria. Mm -hmm. What were the big differences between these officers and staff uh, that you noticed and how did it affect the work that they did?
1: So interestingly enough for the first um, period, which is basically what I look at, the difference is they're, they're present, but they're not as apparent as you might think. And there's a very good reason for that, which is the officers who are supervising, let's say Austrian affairs from Washington within SSU, they had been in the field themselves and they had sort of risen I don't want to say they'd been promoted because they weren't really promoted, but they had been asked to fill in leadership or supervisory positions in Washington, uh, sort of on a temporary basis. But over time, it became a permanent basis. And the the best example of this is um, Richard Helms, who he's in Germany. He's in the field. He's in um, He's, you know, I don't want to say he's in the trenches, but he's basically, he's doing all of the things that a field-based intelligence officer would do. And then I think around December 1945, he goes back to the United States. There's this talk of, well, am I, is he's sort of saying, am I going to continue with intelligence or, or not? And ultimately, he decides to continue with, with SSU. And um, he becomes this temporary head of the Central European um, desk. And uh, he takes over from two field officers, one of whom was, um, you know, in Austria uh, at the time prior to coming back to Washington and had supervised this German-Austrian desk. And so Helms basically, he comes in with this operational mindset, this field mindset. And he applies that to working in headquarters so in washington so he's not this he's not really a bureaucrat uh, when he starts out he becomes one later on and i would i would even dispute that there, there are people who say he becomes this you know ultimate bureaucrat i think at heart he remained um he he continued to have a soft spot for guys in the field and um that's that's just my my sentiment but um, he, he really, he does a lot to support the field-based intelligence in Germany and in Austria and in Switzerland, which are his three sort of core countries um, that he's, he's looking over, which are, you know, Germany and Austria in 1946 are basically where intelligence is being gathered on, you know, the Soviet Union, the Red Army, um, all of these, you know, that's where the occupation is happening. Uh, Italy is, to a lesser extent, important, and that's not within Helms' uh, brief, but he is supervising intelligence collection in those areas, in Germany and Austria, and then further into Central Europe, and it's basically everything you know SSU has on, on the Soviet Union, except for some, uh, there's some Scandinavian activity, some Baltic activity as well, but that's besides the point.
0: Reflecting on the presence of these U.S. intelligence officers in Austria, uh, it's a very gray area within history, I think, with many intelligence officers, uh, whether they were successful or unsuccessful is difficult to determine. But if you had to, how, how would you describe the success or lack thereof of these officers within Austria? What kinds of impacts did they have and what, is, what should their legacy be today? So I, I
1: take a very, I don't want to say optimistic, but I take a very positive view of the situation considering. So one, one way to look at it is to say, well, how much did they know? How much did they find out? What effect did, did their intelligence have? And if you look at things that way, Um, There have been some pretty negative appreciations of the situation to say, well, they didn't really do that much and their efforts were kind of amateurish and they messed up and they didn't find this out. But I like to look at it from the converse and to say, in this time of great international uncertainty and upheaval, there weren't really any major intelligence failures or intelligence catastrophes either we we can't forget that basically the Soviets have a Trojan horse this entire time. Um, you know, they have Kim Philby and they have these Soviet moles who have burrowed into the top echelons of their foreign service and their intelligence service and are rubbing shoulders with many of these leading lights of the U of the very young U S intelligence community. So, considering that all of these huge failures like albania and later the uh, the operations into ukraine these sort of parachute drops the baltic operations we've kind of put together that all of these were blown by philby and his his you know cohorts who are from the british service which is apparent which is you know ostensibly the much more mature and refined and professional one we don't really see a lot of um, American intelligence officers blown. We don't see their operations failing. If they don't work out, it's sort of this, well, we couldn't achieve what we wanted to, but the Soviets aren't any the wiser either, um, or our agents just lost interest in it, or we haven't had contact with them. So I would say by not having these monumental failures, which which did come later, that they, they did they did a pretty good job and we also should remember these are young people these are mostly mostly men there are some women but mostly men in their 30s they've you know come out of college they've gone through the second world war a lot of them uh, spent you know three or four years in a various branch of the service or with OSS and they're putting what they've sort of this wartime experience to use in Austria or in Germany or elsewhere And my estimation is they're doing pretty well. They're 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 doing a good job. They're getting information that the military wants, the US occupation authorities want, that the State Department wants. And the reviews of the the assessments of their information are really very positive. So especially from Austria, you have reports where they say, um, you know, the report, the the intelligence that's coming in from from Vienna from from Salzburg it's very high quality from Trieste it's especially good there's a lot of intelligence on the Yugoslav order of battle on fortifications along the coast there's really great information coming in or from SSU Austria and its successors and it's greatly appreciated in Washington there are even uh, I haven't found the exact report yet but there is mention of one report being included in, I think, April 1946 in the president's um, daily brief. So intelligence from Austria is getting to the president of the United States as of, let's say, April 1946, which is a pretty, I would say, a pretty good sign of, of quality.
0: So post-war Austria has the, a lot of people have this I guess, idea of the country in the post-war as a hotbed for spies. Mm -hmm. This legacy has kind of continued to the present to a certain extent as well. In a country that even at the beginning of the century still was a very multi-ethnic, multinational empire, and then becoming a much smaller country population-wise, culturally, uh, what were the sentiments of Austrians at the time having uh, the allies in Russia within the country? How aware were they of the intelligence operations going on? Just was there any like positive or negative emotion towards it or not, not so much? So I,
1: I think there are a few different ways to answer that and to look at that. So what what kind of happens is, when OSS comes into Austria in May 1945, there's this sort of mad scramble to find war criminals, to look for werewolf, this you know sort of stay behind uh, Nazis, to find about the Alpenfestung, so this you know last stand fortress that was being created in the in the mountains, and also to f- to look at what was at the time German industry, but would be Austrian industry. So where are the factories? What kind of bombing damage was done to them? There's there's this mad rush. And so you see a lot of intelligence about Austria from Austrians on Austrian topics, sort of right, I would say between, you know, May, 1945, going up into October, November, 1945. And after that point, intelligence on Austria and interactions with Austrians, it really gets down to, I really like this phrase a lot, it's used in the reports as high-level political reporting. So this focus in SSU, it shifts to what we would today think of as intelligence. So, you know, meeting with Austrian politicians or their, you know, associates or their secretaries and getting snippets of information about this or that. Um, it, it kind of, it comes off the streets, you could say. It's not this hanging on a street corner, meeting with someone who knows something kind of intelligent. It goes up to a much higher level. That sort of, let's say, street corner intelligence, it uh, continues on, but it's directed towards the Soviet occupational zone. So it's about... How many airplanes does the Red Army Air Force have in Austria? How many airfields are operational? How many unit badges can you see if you sit on the side of a roadway? It's sort of this collecting information in Austria, but not about Austrian subjects. And um, the Austrian focus shifts to this high level politics and sort of policy making uh, intelligence. Um, about interactions with Austrians. Uh, there there isn't much said from what I've seen and I'm sure Professor Baer has seen much more and would dispute what I'm saying about to say now. But there is uh, a very interesting report, I believe from the summer of 1945. And it's about interviews with Volks, Volksdeutsche. So these Germans who had been living all over Central and Eastern Europe and had been forcibly kicked out, uh, uh, you know, either by the, the Red Army or the new national government. So in, you know, Romania, you have the, the Siebenburger Saxon, who are all kind of kicked out and told, you know, go west, get get out of here, and um, a lot of other places, too, uh, around Central and, and Eastern Europe. There's a, a report of an interaction between them and an OSS officer. and. The OSS officer writes a very interesting uh, comment about them. So there's a report around this time from the Counterintelligence Corps, which was a uh, sort of part of the U.S. military that operated in conjunction with and uh, alongside the OSS in Austria. And uh, this report details how Volksdeutsche, um, and other displaced people in Austria felt about Austrians so the report begins quote starts 430 CIC Salzburg so the 430th uh, counterintelligence Corps detachment Salzburg reports that a series of interviews recently with displaced persons of all nationalities has revealed a permanent deep-seated hatred of Austria and Austrians especially among the Germans and Volksdeutsch is the feeling that Austrians have quote acted like swine, end quote, toward their racial brothers, while the Slavic displaced persons frankly state that their hatred toward the Germanic race extends especially against the Austrians. A typical statement from a Yugoslav displaced person is as follows quote, should I work for this damned people to aid their reconstruction, which will probably be directed at Yugoslavia again in the distant future? It is better to loaf than to help these hateful people in the slightest. End quote it's it's so brutal and so blunt that it almost has to be true in a sense that this is a real sentiment. This is not something someone would just make up and report to an intelligence officer just for fun. It, it, so you, you have little snippets like that where you see really this glimpse into Austrian society and the behavior of some Austrians. And it's it's not positive. <laughs> it's not a nice... Uh, view of, of Austrians in the post-war period, but it's there and you you can't really ignore it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, it's really interesting. Did, um, were there any other surprises that stood out to you during the research? Surprises? Um, I would say
1: we, we have this view of, um, intelligence officers from, you know, from TV shows, from movies, from Hollywood, that they're either this, you know, James Bond type, you know, debonair and tuxedo and martini, or they're this sort of monkish bookworm. It's more of the John le Carré, George Smiley kind of spy. And I have to say that the intelligence officers that I've sort of looked at in, uh, in Austria and in Washington, in this period, they don't really fit into either of those molds. They're, they're, they have parts of both. But it, it could be a cultural thing. It could be an American thing that you have these letters, this correspondence between supervisor and the supervised. And it's very brotherly. It's very friendly. It's free flowing. They're very uh, you know, please say hi to Sherry for me, and give my best to Al and Steve. And and they're talking about people who are basically running U.S. intelligence, and say, hey, you know, give my best to the chief, and t- tell him I owe him a beer. And um, th- there's a there's a security officer who says that he's waiting to get to Vienna to eat a big Wiener Schnitzel and have some Krugel of beer. And he uses these words, and it's in the same report, he's talking about how they need to have better locks and they need to secure uh, their facilities. And then he ends his message by saying, "Well, you should come to Vienna and get smashed with me and and you know eat, eat a big Wiener Schnitzel and and have some and get drunk on beer." And it's like you know you have this professional side and this sort of unprofessional side, and that you see that in the documents. It's very human, I think, because that's how that's how people would act, especially Americans who are far from home. They're going to uh, enjoy their time in Austria too. They're not all business, they're not all work, they're not, you know, trench coats and top hats and hiding around corners in dark alleyways and stuff. They're also gonna go out and, you know, eat Schnitzel and have fun and go dancing and look for girls and whatever else, you know? So that comes through in a lot of the, a lot of the official documents. I'm not talking about personal letters or memoirs. These are government documents stored in U.S. government facilities, and <laughs> you have, you know, talking about what kind of night on the town they're going to have, which is not, so, not necessarily surprising, but interesting and refreshing in a way to see the human side of of uh, intelligence officers.
0: Yeah, that's really nice to hear. The uh, people kind of tend to think of the employees of an organization as the organization itself but at an individual level it's much more relatable
1: yeah relatable is is the word i would definitely use um relatable the the human face of it actually yeah
0: so i guess as we're wrapping or getting close to the end is there anything that you feel like uh we should discuss further or that we didn't touch on
1: um, I would I would just like to say a few words about the the entire application process and the the grant process. Is that okay? Yeah, or, of course. You know you have this image in your mind of, of an application process, whether it's for a job or for a research grant or for uh, say a university program. And I just want to say that the application process for the Bocchivo Institute it was it was so. Relaxed or easygoing isn't the right word, but it was very straightforward. And um, anyone who's still listening and uh, maybe wondering whether they should apply for a cheaper grant or not, I would say go for it, try it, because it's you put your application together, you get your um, letters of, of recommendation, and and you apply and and. You're kept in contact the entire time. so there's not this waiting game where you know, you don't hear for months or weeks on end. Uh, whenever there's a development, you hear about it and the dates that are set, they're really very well adhered to. So when you see that the deadline is this date and participants are known on this are notified on this date, you really are notified on that date, if not earlier, I mean a few days earlier. It's, it's not this long waiting game. You don't feel like you're out of the loop. Uh, I just, I had such a wonderful experience and I came into it with some, I don't want to say negative ex- past experiences, but there had been a few different programs that I applied to where I didn't hear anything and then you get, you know, you get a negative response or um, they request further documentation from you and then you don't hear anything at all. And working with... Um, the Bocchiiva Institute. It wasn't anything like that. It was very much uh, being kept informed, being kept in the loop, very straightforward, and um, I just it, it was just such a wonderful experience to apply and then to receive the grant and to to conduct research at the National Archives, and it was just uh, in in College Park in Maryland, not the National Archives in in Q in. Uh, in london that's a different the national archives Uh, but it was just it was such a fantastic experience and i really would just like to
0: recommend it to anyone who's who's on the fence about it try it go for it thank you for listening to today's episode if you enjoyed the podcast keep an eye out for new content across our various social media platforms linked below you can also find more from our guests and their work in the description The Butchdieper Institute for Austrian-American Studies promotes an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the lands of the former Habsburg Empire, by awarding grants and fellowships, organizing lectures and conferences, and publishing the Journal of Austrian-American History. We engage with a broader public audience through digital programming, including videos, podcasts, and blog posts. Auf Wiedersehen, and see you next time.